everybody, and welcome to the second virtual roundtable hosted by Altius Healthcare Consulting Group. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today on this special episode of Altius Answers, as well as our virtual roundtable conversation regarding the impact that COVID-19 and the coronavirus are having on the healthcare industry. Today, we have three special guests with us that are going to share their perspectives on what's happening within their um, environments and communities. Today, we are joined by Diana Levesque, the Chief Administrator Officer from Genesis Healthcare System. She is going to share the strategies that her community and hospital have taken to really have a forward-thinking approach to how they're addressing some unique situations that they're facing in Zanesville, Ohio. We're also then going to hear an update by Pete Stilley from SSR. He's going to share some updates regarding availability of PPE and other information that he has gained since our last roundtable conversation. And then we're going to wrap up with Ken Cashmore from Boston Scientific. He is a clinical education manager for the Northeast area. And Ken's going to share some interesting information with us regarding how cardiac services have really adapted within the last two weeks, three weeks, regarding uh, their ability to actually remotely monitor patients and adapt to a new virtual uh, world. He'll also share some mindset information uh, that's really important as we all work to adapt to working remotely in certain situations and really position ourselves for the future. I'm going to start by just sharing a little bit of information with you on you know, what we've been seeing as the impact um, with COVID. You know, a lot of things have happened over the last week. Number one, one of the best changes that we've seen is that the CDC has really recommended that elective surgeries are canceled, which has caused a lot of healthcare entities and systems to begin with um, some furloughing of employees. Diana in a minute is gonna share an approach that Genesis has taken to that, that I think is really gonna be useful and beneficial to others to hear. Uh, what we have heard from our clients and others in the industry that the rates of reported furloughs range anywhere from minimal 1% to as high as upwards of 25%, depending on the hospital or healthcare system. In some other areas where they're actually experiencing the crunch of volume, like we're gonna hear later on from Ken and some other things in the New York, New Jersey area, there's been the exact opposite approach. But what we are seeing now is that hospitals expect that the volume in these areas are going to deteriorate before they actually increase. So they're taking steps to ensure financial stability moving forward. In addition, in places where you know, coronavirus has already started to grow, and the communities might be starting to see an uptick in volume and or in preparation for those upticks, we started to see providers and clinicians reassigned to other areas where the projected needs are going to be or the current needs are so that they can be trained in those new specialty areas or trained in what their duties will be as they're assisting the healthcare organization. Uh, UPMC, which is local to the Altius market in Pittsburgh, has taken a unique approach where they've said, we're not gonna make any changes right now to our employees, but we're going to keep everyone paid at least through May 9th. And as we reassign them to other job duties, we're gonna keep that in flux. So what they've really done is reassigned all of their workforce to the areas that they believe they may need them in the weeks forthcoming. So with the alternate care sites and solutions, uh, we've started to see a lot of updates happening. 
Uh, communities everywhere are looking for opportunities to adjust the care sites. So they're looking for opportunities to really make sure that they have additional sites available. So we've seen the implementation lately of some drive-by screenings and screenings to triage the patients. Uh, we've seen ramped up utilization for telehealth. Um, there's been some reopen of closing facilities. Uh, what we have noticed also is in certain areas where you may have underutilized clinics or you might have dormitories or other locations that are available, we have had clients that have actually opened up those locations and started to either work with the Army Corps of Engineers or work with other opportunities to actually repurpose those to treat patients. Uh, that ranges from a hospital right outside of Pittsburgh that is um, currently being re revisited and potentially reopened to take an influx of patients coming through in the weeks to come. Uh, we have seen hospitals that have converted the single rooms to the double rooms. And we've also seen shuttles that have started to really be um, put in place to shuttle patient to less crowded sites. Uh, overall, it's really a matter of potentially routing typical emergencies to other locations so that you avoid transmission of the disease whenever possible. I think I shared last week uh, that Temple University Hospital has actually segmented off portions of their hospital and designated them as COVID-19 coronavirus locations. So they have elevators that are being used specifically for those patients. They have entryways that are being used specifically for those patients. And these are some of the changes that we're really seeing coming through in the forefront of care right now. There's also been a few creative um, solutions that have come out of the housing market. Chicago has rented thousands of hotel rooms and they are going to start putting suspected cases in those hotel rooms for quarantine. Uh, their city's health department is starting to staff some of that. Uh, we have seen quarantine people in that location. They do see, receive three meals. And so they're making sure that they're fed while that they're there, but they're starting to really ration out and quarter out those employees into certain places. A UPMC has prepared dormitory space at the University of Pittsburgh, and they're going to use that space to actually house their staff so that if for some reason they feel that they've exposed or they want to self-quarantine so they're not putting their families at risk, they're going to be allowed to stay there so that it's easier access for them to go back and forth to care. So there's a lot of unique things that are happening within the industry right now. And I think uh, Genesis Healthcare has really done some unique things from a perspective of um, really looking at the employees first. You know, one of the things that Altius really focuses on and embraces is that in order for healthcare providers and healthcare in general to really ensure that we're providing appropriate care for our patients, we must always put employees first. You know, if we're going to really combat this together and unite as a nation, unite as a community, we have to make sure we're taking care of our employees. And with that, I'd like to um, pass it off to Diana Levesque as she has been with Genesis Healthcare System now uh, for I think over 30 years. And I'll let her introduce herself quickly with her background and then share some of the unique strategies that they've been doing. And I think everyone's gonna really find this very beneficial. Welcome, Thank Diana. Thank you, Stephanie, I appreciate it. Um, as Stephanie said, I'm Diana Levesque. I'm the Chief Administrative Officer for Genesis Healthcare System. We are a, um, a facility in Southeastern Ohio, and we, we are sort of a regional hub for about six of the contiguous counties to our own. Um, we are about 60 miles from the Columbus, Ohio market. Um, and so, you know, we have not yet experienced the, the surge that many other areas are being hit with. Obviously, we are, we are taking a great deal of energy and effort to prepare. 
for that. Um, our, as Stephanie said, our employees of, are critically important to us and we have been, as I'm sure many other healthcare facilities have been experiencing, um, a challenge with being able to keep them working um, and still maintain, you know, the viability from a financial perspective of the organization. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and so we had initially started with doing voluntary absences, allowing people to take time unpaid or use their paid time off. We have found very quickly that that is not nearly uh, sufficient to give people a sense of stability uh, and to really keep them connected to the mission of, of being the healthcare hub in our region of the state. And so we have taken uh, a, a little different approach to um, what we are doing with our employees. You know, I, I appreciate the uh, information that Stephanie shared on what UPMC is doing. We are not an organization large enough or with the resources to maintain all of our employees at their current FTE. We have done some similar things in looking at every employee's skill set, and we have redeployed staff to areas where they uh, their skills can uh, continue to be utilized based on the volume of work that is available. For others, we have taken a position to not uh, separate their employment with us, but have preferred to go the route of a furlough. And the furlough is allowing them to apply for their unemployment benefits so that they at least have some consistency in the flow and understanding of what their compensation and and monies might be coming into the home, but we have allowed them to remain on, if they are benefit eligible, on our benefits plan, paying only their portion of the premium as they would uh, at any other time during active employment. Um, this has allowed us to keep them connected to us. Um, in the furlough strategy, we have uh, required them to agree to recall to work within 24 hour notice, because we know when the surge hits, we will have a very limited window of time to, to ramp up. Um, I think that it's been amazingly well received as, as Stephanie indicated, I've been in the healthcare field um, and with Genesis now over 30 years and have been through reductions in force and, and traditional layoffs. Um, our employees have responded to this uh, so much more positively than I could have ever expected. They are appreciative of this modified approach that we're taking. Um, they have been more than willing to re be reassigned, relocate, or uh, step away until they are needed through our strategy. Um, we have, as Stephanie talked about, you know, the varying range of percentages from the volumes that we're experiencing and the productivity that we are trying to get to. We have challenged our leaders to identify about a 10% uh, reduction through furlough, and then we are accomplishing another approximately 5% through reduced hours uh, through VA or uh, use of PTO. So it in the initial stages has uh, again been well received. It's it's a, a creative approach that we've never taken before, but we are hopeful that our employees will uh, will be out there and ready to respond when the community uh, needs us. So, uh, and I, Stephanie, if you have questions or anything additional that I can share, I'm happy to to do that. Diana, I. 
uh, commend the organization for the unique approach that you've taken to actually identifying steps that you can take to keep the employees engaged. I think, you know, in this time period, the accountability and the transparency of that engagement and communication is so important. So I really think that, you know, hospitals around the country are dealing with similar situations. And I really like the approach of, you know, allowing the employees to stay engaged with the organization, having the 24-hour notice so that you can call them back within a you know, reasonable time frame that you can ramp up whenever you need to. So I think that's really good. And I don't think we have any questions from the audience right now, uh, but if there's anything regarding you know, what's occurring from a community response and you'd like to share, you know, feel free, and then we'll pass on to the next panelist. Um, so from a community response, it has been absolutely amazing. Um, our community has has done a wonderful job with uh, with social distancing and uh, in Ohio, for those of you who are not uh, in in a state that's doing this, we are in a under a stay at home order. Um, and and I think folks in our area have done a great job with that, but I, I have just been amazed at how local uh, industries have reached out to us. A lot of our construction firms are shut down. They have donated their uh, you know, N95 masks, their shields. Um, we have, you know, we have owners of these companies driving up and drop, dropping off, you know, cases of these things to us. They have just been amazing. Our local uh, Harbor Freight has donated all of their uh, N95s to us, as well as um, we have, have been very supported by uh, our local Lowe's and Home Depot. And uh, it, it has been amazing. And, and the support that they have and the appreciation that they have for our workers, I would encourage anybody um, who is getting feedback from their community. One of, the, one of the most amazing things is, you know, with the schools being closed, we had a group of teachers who um, drove through our parking lot with signs out their windows thanking all of the the employees and healthcare workers for all that they're doing for the uh, the community and the employees were just thrilled. So even the smallest uh, response from the community and support has has made people smile and it gives them, you know, a bit of a recharge and a reboot, uh, knowing that you know things are we anticipate things to get much worse, but knowing that the community is out there to support us uh, has just been amazing. That's incredible. I really appreciate the story where you have the educators that are actually coming to show their appreciation for, you know, the heroes within the healthcare community right now that really are, you know, in many cases dealing with situations they never had to tackle in the past. And I love the fact that your community really united together and that you've been getting personal protection equipment from other organizations and that they're dropping things off. I think the one thing that's going to come out of, you know, what we're all dealing with with the coronavirus and the current pandemic is I've seen more of a community atmosphere in the past, you know, two to three weeks than I have in probably the last, you know, several decades. Everyone is just uniting, or at least since, you know, 9-11, people are uniting, coming together and really approaching this from what can we do to help? And I see a lot of service. So I, I love that idea. And you know anything that anyone can do to support the healthcare organizations in today's environment is really important. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie, for letting me participate. I apologize; I am going to have to jump off for another meeting, but thank you again. That's okay. Thank you for joining, Diana. We appreciate your insight.
So with that, we heard some great information from Diana Levesque on you know, what is happening within Zanesville, Ohio. And as I've shared before, we're gonna to continue to bring stories from across the country uh, to all of you so that we can share different perspectives and hopefully you know, address situations that are going in local communities, both small cities as well as large cities, rural areas and critical access. And with that, I'm going to um, toss it to Pete Stilley. Pete's gonna give us a quick update on some PPE updates and just a continuation of information that he shared with us last week. So with that, Pete, go ahead. Thank you, Stephanie. Uh, again, this is Pete Stilley, I'm CEO with Strategic Sourcing Results. Uh, we're a consulting firm here in Chicago and we're focused on the healthcare supply chain. Uh, and, and we've seen a lot of activity this week uh, since our last call increased activity really in alternative sourcing methods, uh, some of which does include some important pieces of the community. So it was, it was great to hear that conversation. Um, so the, the first thing we, that I, I want to update everyone on is that we are starting to see government shipments uh, of the um, ever-elusive N95 mask. Uh, some states are getting uh, their orders filled completely. Uh, Georgia, Florida, Oklahoma were noted as uh, being able to receive their full allotments. Some of the more challenged sites, the hotspots, uh, Illinois, New York, uh, are, are getting some just uh, are what we call back orders, and, and some are getting a couple, uh, you know, 10% of their order filled, some are more than half. Uh, the good news is it's happening, and the way it works for, for those that are wondering, it, it goes to the uh, emergency response, the, the regional hospital uh, takes over the uh, re reception of the supplies from the, the federal government uh, and then they distribute it throughout their region um, as allotted. Uh, so that's good news. Uh, also on Tuesday, no it was Monday, uh, there was some guidance given that these N95 masks can be sterilized through uh, the Sterad autoclave. Um, I have not yet heard that Stericycle's uh, sterilizer is approved yet, but for up to two uses, you can uh, you get more use out of one mask. Uh, so that was good news for a lot of people. And if anybody needs uh, the white paper on that, uh, you'll have my email at the end of this uh, section for follow-ups. Uh, you know, the email has been blowing up this past week with everyone searching for PPE and sharing um, good thoughts. But again, in the community spirit, it's been a great discussion to have and people are definitely willing to share their best practices and, and their ideas out there. Um, something else that we're starting to see is uh, more manufacturing for portable autoclaves. Uh, th this is re-sterilizing the masks uh, up to three times. Uh, and, it, and it only takes one minute, and you can put it up on the units for the providers to do. Um, afterwards, the, the, uh, there's thoughts that they'll use that just to help sterilize uh, cell phones that come into units. Uh, so I know Carl found it uh, in Illinois has purchased uh, a few dozen of them, and uh, there's increased shipments and interest uh, in, in this. It's a steam technology for sterilization. We talked last week about 3D uh, printing. Uh, Georgia Tech has shared uh, 3D printing uh, uh, blueprints and uh, it does have volunteers now uh, making face shields. Um, and you know, one thing that I noticed from my call with ARM last week was a lot of discussion about corporate donations. So 
it really is important to uh, be, be in contact and, and thinking about uh, what you can do from a community perspective to support your local hospital, as well as making sure you're reaching out to business partners that, that know um, what you're looking for and, and how they could um, donate to the organization uh, things that they don't need. Uh, there's the N95 Max, of course, there's some repurposing of, of materials that have got level three protections that you can make into gowns. Uh, there's a lot of uh, different things going on out there. Uh, the, the problem is there's so much going on, it's not well coordinated. So I did want to let the community know that um, AHA has, has, is working with a few organizations to launch a clearinghouse. It's, it's going to be up in mid-April and I'll, I'll report back when, when it is up and live and ready. Uh, but this will be to identify people who need masks and people that have them uh, outside the local communities, as well as other PPE equipment. Meantime, I would suggest uh, to uh, reach out to uh, the AHA, uh, American Hospital Association. They're they're acting as a uh, you know, hub in the meantime. Um, in addition uh, to all this madness, you, you can imagine it's hard to keep up from the supply chain perspective on what's safe, what's truly meet, meeting regulations, what, what's uh, you know a, a fraudulent supply and what's not. So there's good guidance out there and uh, everyone in, in the supply chain profession is, is uh, well versed on what they need to do. But this has you know, brought up some new questions such as, you know, can you trust an N95 from China? And uh, if there's any doubt, if it does have the stamp, that's typically what people look for. But if there's any doubt, people are taking it down to the lab and testing, uh, you know, one, if they if they have the ability to test it beforehand. And uh, I did get some information that, you know, some organizations are even taking products that are beyond expiration, taking that down to the laboratory and, and seeing if they're, uh, you know, still um, uh, appropriate to be used in the clinical setting. So the labs are getting taxed, uh, the infectious disease uh, docs are getting taxed and, and being asked a lot. Uh, the infectious disease nurses are really working overtime to make sure that everything is, is properly reviewed um, before it comes into the hospital and um, you know, serves the employees and the patients. Um, then I think I wanted to close with a couple of things. Um, one, for the uh, association, if you are, uh, for the people that are listening, if you are interested in hearing uh, more about what the organization is doing, uh, MIT does have uh, a webinar coming up talking about different approaches here. And then the, the uh, health, uh, HFMA, the Healthcare Financial Management Association, has got uh, uh, webinar coming up. Uh, I think both are next week. And if you want more information about that, uh, please feel free to reach out. Um, other, than, other than that, the only thing um, we've been talking to clients about differently than last week, uh, you know, a few have reached out and, and, and for some this is automatic, for others um, to look at it a little more deeply is what is your policy for uh, paying suppliers? And, you know, a lot of my clients were looking at uh, extended payment terms to help them manage cash flow uh, throughout this time. Uh, so some are doing that to make sure that they're not hurting, you know, uh, the local su um, suppliers that uh, are also feeling some, some cash flow crunch. And, and it's tough everywhere. So, you know, this is putting a strain on the entire system uh, from the beginning to end. Uh, but that is a strategy that people are, are looking into right now. Uh, so. 
that is my supply chain update for today. Uh, thanks for having me on again, Stephanie. Thank you, Pete. Really appreciate the update. And I think you know some of those strategies are definitely things that our clients and the industry at large can use. We had a couple uh, requests for the actual white paper. So we'll make sure that we um, continue to do that. And we also have a question um, talking about, you know, is there a general shortage of regular surgical masks prior to the outbreak or is this just caused because of the outbreak? That you're aware of, Pete? It's caused because of the outbreak. Yeah. So I think, you know, in general, um, before this outbreak, there were an ample supply of most of these, you know, PPE equipment pieces. But because the outbreak actually came on so quickly and grew so rapidly, uh, we're stretched beyond, you know, what we've typically seen. The good news is, you know, healthcare always responds and adapts to situations. And I think that as we work our way through this pandemic, uh, we'll be much better prepared for the next one. So Pete, thank you so much for your update. Um, we'll make sure that everyone has copies of your contact information if they have additional questions and that they can connect with you. And with that, we're gonna um, welcome Ken Cashmore to the table. Uh, Ken works with Boston Scientific and we're gonna get some unique perspective from Ken on you know, what the organization has done in response to the coronavirus outbreak, and also some of their strategies for how they've adapted quickly to move more remotely. Uh, for you know, the majority of you on the call, I'm sure you're well aware that you know, when you're dealing with the actual supply chain within healthcare, a lot of the vendors have to supply equipment to the operating room and are used to actually being in the operating room as these procedures are ongoing. So as the patients are you know, per performing and as the providers are there, they're actually in the room assisting and providing guidance and teaching and details. And as you can imagine, like the rest of us, now that we're working in you know, a six feet social distancing environment, they've been forced out of the operating room and into different situations. So Ken, we're really excited to hear what you have to share today, uh, both about how Boston Scientific has you know, adapted to being a little bit more remote, your situation, you know, as you are located very close to the New York City Metro and, you know, what you're seeing there and just sharing information in general. So welcome. I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to share. Well, thank you, uh, Stephanie, and to the rest of the panelists. And, and thank you again for, for hosting uh, these kind of collaborative events. I did listen to last week's and found it really insightful and informative. And I think this is a time you know, as uh, it's already been mentioned, that everybody is, you know, pulling together and uniting and sharing our best ideas, our best insights, best technologies, best solutions. So, um, you know, it is it is an amazing thing to see, um, if you want to call it a silver lining through it all, um, of how many organizations that typically would be competitive, including, you know, those that we compete with, we're we're all in this together. We're just trying to do our best to find the best solutions um, to get us all through it. So uh, again, I can't thank you enough for um, for hosting. Um, so just a brief background uh, from from me personally. I've been in this uh, medical industry and, and medical device space for about 25 years, and before that, I was a critical care nurse. And you know, as you can imagine, um, in in any critical care setting, of course, um, there can be some pretty intense moments. And one of the things I, I always remember one of my physicians saying is, you know, 
when when the heat is on, you know, facts are your friends, and uh, being calm can be contagious. So uh, in a critical care space, you know, there's there's that um, readiness that you're always, you know, expected to perform, even though it doesn't happen that often. Uh, but in in this situation, I think with everybody dealing with a variety of different emotions and challenges, I think we just have to rely a lot on facts and just you know kind of revisit those and just calmly kind of approaches from a solution-based um, setting. So with that being said, um, one of the areas that we are focused on and have been since 2015, as you could see on, on the screen, there was a, a consensus statement out of the Heart Rhythm Society and uh, back in uh, May of 2015, that basically created a standard of care for remote monitoring for cardiac device patients. So those cardiac devices included pacemakers, defibrillators, and uh, biventricular defibrillators, and then eventually evolved into implantable loop recorders, which can monitor um, arrhythmias for patients. So the, the kind of ironic thing here is we're coming up on a five-year anniversary to this consensus statement, which after this came out, you know, there were plenty of uh, organizations across the country that, you know, moved to adapt this pretty quickly. And over the last five years, there's been a wide range of adoption. So there are some institutions perhaps that have close to 95 to 98% adoption. And then there's institutions that have, you know, maybe closer to the 50%, 60% range as far as adoption in their institutions for a variety of reasons. So Again, going back to the fundamentals and facts, um, this has been around a long time, and all of our uh, competitive companies as well offer some sort of technology that can help institutions right now if you're not dealing with um, kind of a uh, increase in the uh, coronavirus. Now is the time to really start revisiting your device clinics and engaging your staff and reaching out to those patients who might have remote monitors at home but either they're just unplugged or there's some sort of other issue that they just didn't want to be compliant. But right now we, we've seen um, a rapid increase in the Northeast, especially New York City and New Jersey, with uh, making sure every patient that uh, has a remote capable device has a monitor at home that they can uh, take advantage of. So that being said, the, the, um, the one area that we never really expected to see this technology uh, be utilized was in the environment we're in today. So um, can we go to the next slide? Do I have control of the slides? Oh, there it is. Okay. So one of my uh, jobs as a clinical education manager in the Northeast is to keep people informed, obviously uh, provide best practices and create strategies around what's needed to, um, you know, provide our, our customers uh, with the technology that we have. And when this whole thing, things started to hit pretty quickly. A lot of our employees were not, you know, well-versed in the chain of infection and these hierarchy of control measures that infectious disease physicians, um, you know, deal with on a regular basis. So um, what you see on the screen was pulled from NeTech, and um, I wasn't fully aware of what they offered, but they are a pretty amazing resource. Um, and the National Emerging Special, Pathos, Special Pathogen Training and Education Center, they offer plenty of educational resources. This is one that I uh, recommended for our employees just to get a, a good sense of uh, the environment that we're asked to go into on occasion now. We just need to understand 
how to protect ourselves and some of the uh, controls that are being implemented by hospitals, um, certainly in the Northeast, but uh, across the country. So when you, when you look at that pyramid, the hierarchy of controls, the interesting thing that I learned coming out of this was that substitution um, was a very important part of reducing risk to um, everybody, right? Including people uh, on the front line. So the substitution part, they give an example in this educational module of removing equipment or personnel, uh, unnecessary personnel, but still being able to provide the care. And what you see on the screen there is a video link. And of course, everybody's focused on telemedicine, which is pretty much turned into tele-everything. Anything that we can do remotely now, I think really should be explored, uh, especially in the areas of the country that haven't seen that increase yet. So um, what we've been able to do is um, with all of the technology that's been evolving, even though this remote technology was intended for you know, patient monitoring at home, there is now the opportunity for newer technology, which literally just got some recent software approval this week from the FDA. And if you want, you can uh, go to the next screen. There's plenty of different technologies that are available. Um, the one that I'm gonna highlight today is a technology called HeartConnect. And what HeartConnect does is it allows uh, specialized electrophysiologists or nurse practitioners in a device clinic to be able to remotely connect live with either a remote agent in our home office in Minneapolis or our field personnel, our engineers um, that can basically be there and uh, observe an interrogation of a device uh, during a device check. They can also remote in for an implant. And as you mentioned, elective procedures at this point have pretty much been eliminated. Um, the uh, Heart Rhythm Society, uh, ACC and AHA just came out with an announcement this week listing those procedures. So um, there are only emergent procedures being done. However, there are still patients who need medical devices. And as recently as uh, this past week, we've done remote uh, support during an implant, uh, during several implants actually, and this HeartConnect allows uh, for the uh, engineer or remote technician to not only observe, but also uh, navigate, annotate. The only thing they can't do is push a button and make a change, right? The, the clinician in the room actually has to, has to do that. So um, again, it wasn't something we expected to see as a value in the way of an infectious disease crisis, uh, but under the circumstances, uh, it is something that is, is providing a solution for, for some of the areas. And if you go to the next slide. So that, that HeartConnect uh, used to be a separate uh, device and now it's gonna be included on the traditional programmer that people are, are used to using in their operating rooms and in their clinics, which makes it a lot easier um, to, to uh, connect with remote agents. There's less equipment involved. Uh, it uses uh, either Ethernet, Wi-Fi, or 4G uh, adapter. So most of these places can get up and running pretty quickly. And one example in New York City that happened two weeks ago uh, where the representative from the company went to support an implant and the physician had informed them that that was going to be the last day because you know hospitals will eliminate unnecessary personnel from entering hospitals at some point but they still needed that support and that's where they started to really scramble for solutions. Um, the good news was this was one of those hospitals, in fact, um, one of the uh, uh, authors 
on that consensus statement. And they had already adopted some of this remote technology uh, to a large degree in their clinic. And they were able to kind of move that and streamline it into the operating room and be able to adapt it within 12 hours and get it up and running. So um, the good news for, for the folks on this call is there are a lot of uh, remote technologies that can be helpful to either prepare for if you haven't been dealing with it yet or if you're in the midst of it, uh, these these can be brought up to speed pretty quickly uh, in in most institutions. And um, if you go to the next slide, so this is just a uh, an image on the bottom left of a of a programmer screen, and on the very bottom right of that is a an image that uh, is just of the operating room. So that's a that literally is a photo from a remote um, agent who is interacting in real time, uh, and this has just, uh, just happened recently, but it's through that programmer that you see on the screen. So everything now is in one system. It can, again, be uh, used via Wi-Fi or Ethernet or uh, 4G adapter. So uh, I would just simply say explore uh, through your cardiology departments uh, what technologies they may have already on-site, and some may be up to, up to speed quicker than others and be ready to go. And uh, again, others who may not be familiar with this technology, which we found to be the case in some places, uh, it doesn't take long to get this technology um, in their hands and uh, provide a solution. And if you go to the last slide. So uh, th this this one, and I, and I'm a, I appreciate um, what the uh, other panelists said about uh, employees and how important employees are to everybody, and it's no different in 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 our space, right? Um, we we have established over the se last several years, you know, a culture that really cares about the people first. And the one thing that I have um, kind of noticed and become very passionate about is making sure that you know we take care of our well-being, and we all want to be productive, especially in the virtual world. But we found it to be challenging you know, for most of us. Um, so what we've done is develop access to, and we found great resources from a variety of sources that you see on your screen there, um, just in the way of saying, look, the one thing that we're not running short on is emotions. We all have uh, different ways of handling that. And, uh, you know, we've got, we've got to find ways that we can focus on keeping ourselves mentally strong, mentally healthy. So um, one of those ways is through this Yale uh, website called the science of well-being and that's literally a 10-week class provided by a professor of psychology uh, dr santos and i've registered for it plenty of our staff has registered for it we've gotten a lot of positive feedback on it it's a self-directed course there's there's no timelines involved but it really does uh, meet the need and provide a lot of insight on everything from how the brain functions, how we process emotions, the difference between the limbic system and the rational brain, and then, you know, tricks and tips that we can use and should be using on a regular basis. You know, for us to be productive, we have to keep ourselves mentally healthy. Um, the second one that uh, you see there on why leaders need meditation now more than ever caught my eye, but that um, was provided by Harvard Business Review as a free resource now for anybody who wants to access it and they're going to continue that I believe um, until until it's not needed so there's some great resources on there but again if you notice it supports the idea of meditation mindfulness 
Um, and then in the middle there, you see Logic Mind and Health. We're lucky enough to have our own subject matter expert in uh, New Jersey. Um, his name is Brandon Hall, and he has his own uh, website, and he's created some podcasts and also wrote a book. But he is a huge proponent of one of the basic things we all really should be thinking of is establishing a clean routine every single day. Um, start your day in a good way, end your day in a good way. As much as we need to be updated in the news, try your best not to end your day with it. Don't spend too much time in it. I, I, I agree we get a lot of information and helpful information from Twitter and other social media sites, but get what you need. You know, it's kind of get in, get out, and then, you know, focus on focus on yourself. And then the last part, uh, these challenger uh, websites are more business related, but they are tailored and customized setting and just how we can um, adapt to the new virtual environment. And um, these are ongoing webinars that are recorded and uh, just like you're doing, you know, pulling people together with best practices and uh, sharing what we need. And the last thing I'll, I'll kind of say and leave you with is um, earlier in this year, you know, as part of our initiative to keep focus on our people, another colleague of mine and I went down to uh, Florida and were trained in being able to deliver emotional intelligence uh, workshops. And you know, for those that are really tapped into EQ, we know how important it is, you know, in the way of just personal and professional success. And the, the one thing that I learned that kind of alarmed me at the time, and I can only imagine how that's increased now, is that on any given day, you know, we average, every person averages about 30 emotions per hour that we have to process. And that, that equates to about 500 per day. And if we don't have you know, good strategies on how we do that. We become very reactive and it just snowballs one on top of the other. So the, the one thing I, I, I would just highly encourage is which, whichever source and method you choose, just find a way to recognize, understand and manage the emotions you're dealing with. And the better we can do that, the more productive we can be for, uh, for each other and, and helping each other get through this. So thank you very much for uh, inviting me on. Yeah, Ken, I think right now mindset is so unbelievably important as we all work to manage and adapt to the current environment that we're living in. And the one thing that I really found um, interesting about the Logic Mind and Health site is it's really about you know how our brains are currently wired for stress and everything that's happening is wired for the reaction of stress. And I think in today's environment, you know, as you mentioned, don't wake up in the morning and turn on the news because then you're wiring your brain for stress and you're wiring your brain for fear. And, you know, the more fear that you have, the more cortisol is released, and the more cortisol that's released, the more stressed that you are. And the more stressed that you are, the lower your immune system is and the lower your immune system is, the more susceptible you are to viruses. So I think all of this information is extremely important right now, you know, given what's happening. And I think embracing all of it's important. And you know, one of the things that I really found interesting at Boston Scientific is, you know, as I was preparing for this call with Ken, is they really put together a remote strategy around how they were going to deploy with their employees. And I think it's very important, as I mentioned earlier, to have that accountability structure in place, but to also have the communication. So as they rolled out to moving to the home office environment, you know, in a lot of hospitals and healthcare systems today, we're taking a portion of employees and we're moving into remote space. And just as Ken mentioned, they had to take some of their in-house technicians and engineers and now have them working remotely. 
So as this happens, you have to really focus on, you know, what are the tips that, that you're providing to your employees for them to connect to the home office? What tools should they have in place for project management? How are you going to check in with them for the virtual team experience to ensure that all projects are currently keeping on track? And how can you really make sure that you have that team environment? So one of the things I love that Boston Scientific did is they really put together a strategy around how they were going to organize, how they were going to communicate, how they were going to meet, and then how they were going to actually humanize the experience. So to make sure that they're setting up those status messages and having a calendar that keeps the team united and really work together. So I commend you know, the organization for that, Ken, and I really appreciate all the information that you shared. And if I could just end with one question, you know, given your proximity to the New York City location and you know, some of your experiences as a former RN and the contacts you currently have in the field, you know, from a more clinical perspective, what are some of the things that you're hearing you know, from contacts? What are you seeing? You know, what are you seeing happening? Well, as you as you can imagine, you know the stories aren't um, you know they're not great. And for those that are in New York City, and I've got plenty of colleagues that are you know in New York City and and the surrounding boroughs, you know it is a um, it is really a difficult situation to see. I mean, it it really is just um, upended a lot of people in, in just the, the ability to even believe that it's real, right? And I I, I know people say often it's such a surreal experience but it, it it truly is so you know i know there are um images now out there where you've everybody's seen the image of the ship coming down the you know the the river next to manhattan um and the um samaritans uh, group that set up the the hospital in central park and then i saw images as well you know where hospitals have these tents set up where Ambulances, ambulances used to be parked, you know, outside the emergency room are now, you know, white tents just to put, you know, the overflow of people in it. So um, even with all that going on, you know, the, the one thing you'll see consistent uh, from the community, and this was mentioned earlier, uh, the support of the communities, the support of the healthcare workers, and I know it's a difficult time, especially in, in New York and New Jersey, um, they're, they're, everybody is doing as much as they can to rally uh, together and support one another. And I think that's probably the most important. I mean, all of the companies, like I said, we are we are so far from thinking anything competitive with one another. We are pulling resources, even locally, to provide, um, whether it be food or supplies, as much as we can, uh, you know, to our local hospitals and our and our colleagues. So. Um, listen, it's not it's not easy, and I know not every part of the country is, is has felt that, and, and I pray that it's not going to turn out to be that. Um, but again, just in what I'm hearing from from the people on your calls, uh, steps are already being taken that I think people will be much better prepared than uh, New York was, you know, when, when this thing first started. Yeah, I really appreciate your insight there. I think the one message that I really heard is that we can all learn from the experiences of others. And as different communities and different cities and different hospitals are experiencing that, we're seeing what they're doing. And what I'm seeing within the community of healthcare in general is a lot more collaboration. And that's not just only within the United States, but it's you know what, what the United States experience is versus Italy versus you know, China versus Canada and just coming together as a community and learning from each other, I think it's a great perspective of where we are. Um, I know we do have one question that came in, so I'll let Brian uh, ask that question and then we can wrap up. 
Okay. All right. Ken, we had a question submitted, and the question is, do you see the potential for remote participation during implants being adopted as a new norm going forward? I, I would probably say not um, as a new norm. I think it would just simply be as, um, as an option when needed. And I don't believe the strategy was ever to make that part of the remote care continuum. There's been plenty of articles published in uh, modern healthcare, for instance, several years ago uh, on the difference between, let's say, a cardiology space and an orthopedic space. Cardiology is what they kind of describe as a very high-touch kind of uh, collaboration where our engineers and our field personnel are providing, you know, a fair amount of technical support during an implant uh, process. So I think having the technology to support it is amazing. I just, I don't know that even physicians would want to make that a permanent uh, permanent solution moving forward just because of the variety of things that happen during an implant. And and as the, you know, the more comp complex cases that you perform, such as, you know, these biventricular implants um, and now conduction system pacing implants are happening, there's a lot of interpretation and troubleshooting that has to happen uh, you know, during some of these longer cases. So I, I would say it's not likely going to become a new norm. What has become the new norm are these remote clinics. So I think patients who are normally faced with traveling, and if they just think about this now, for all those clinics that have remote technology up and running, all those patients that are, are remotely followed, they're, they don't have to come out of their homes, right? So that, that we really want to see, and I think every physician, um, would want to see that now moving forward. I do think you'll see a rapid adoption to device clinics. The one thing I did not mention also, by the way, was MRI suites, which I think is a really important piece of the puzzle because right now there are still patients with cardiac devices who still need MRIs for other reasons. And that has become another source of using remote, these remote um, views where you can do with HeartConnect and be able to help a clinician who may not be well-versed in a cardiac device help them understand how to program it to prepare for an MRI, help them understand how to interrogate and understand what, how to program it back after an MRI. And it really, again, takes that, that NETEC hierarchy model and says, if we can eliminate the interaction between personnel, obviously we're gonna keep them safe, we keep ourselves safe, we keep patients safe. So on the implant side, I don't see it being a new norm. On every other remote aspect for patient care, I do see it being a new norm. And I think that's a great point. Uh, we're starting to see that in other areas as well, uh, ranging from oncology services uh, to even respiratory therapy where there's remote oxygen monitoring. Uh, we're seeing it actually come to the forefront now with behavioral health with a lot more remote sessions and virtual sessions compared to situations where those patients would have to come into the city or come into a clinic and drive 20, 25 minutes. So I think what's gonna be left at the tail end of this is everywhere that it makes sense to continue with the remote monitoring because it's easier for the patients, more accessible, better quality of care will continue. But for those situations like Ken touched on, I think we're gonna continue to see those businesses emerge and continue operations that they had been prior to this situation. But the great thing is that all the technologies that are coming to the forefront now are gonna help us all with the quality of care moving forward. And ultimately it's gonna give us better access to monitoring the health of our patients. Yeah, and if I could just mention one last thing. So on that consensus statement, um, in 2015, the in part of the conclusion 
they had mentioned that one of the things after pulling all the randomized trials from around the world that they concluded was that there is meaningful benefit to patients by just being remotely monitored from home. That's in the normal everyday kind of uh, care situation. So there, there are clearly well-defined and well-established morbidity and mortality benefits to patients just by being remotely monitored uh, for a variety of reasons. And, and I, you know, kind of transition that now to an implant side. I, I know it's not been studied on the implant side because we're, we're just, you know, using that right now just in an emergent situation. Um, but like I said, it was never part of the intent. And I don't know that, I don't know that anybody would even really want to study it because it, there's just too much variability that goes into these implants, I think. So again, as a, as a short-term solution, for sure. But um, remote monitoring, I would just say, again, the mor morbidity, mortality benefit for, for, for patients, well, uh, well published. And um, I would, I would see that as a rapid increase almost everywhere now. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Ken, for your information and insight. It's been very valuable. I'm sure your listeners find it extremely useful as well. And what I just want to close with is, you know, as Altius answers and the Altius roundtables continue, uh, we really like our clients and others to submit any questions or topics that you'd like to see us address. We're going to have the roundtables continuing every Thursday at noon uh, throughout the month of April and May, most likely. And then we'll move to a different format. But for now, make sure if there are any topics that you're interested in learning about, hearing about as it relates to your organization, the community, different situations, please reach out and ask those questions as well as suggest panelists or any individuals that you'd like to hear from. We're here to support you and we wanna provide you with the best information possible. So with that, I hope that everyone found this information useful and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of Altius Answers as well as the Altius Roundtable. Thank you very much and enjoy your day. And also thank you to all the heroes within healthcare, you know, the first responders, the clinicians, the nurses, the doctors. You know, right now, the hours that you're spending tirelessly caring for the patients and putting yourself in difficult situations each day. Altius really appreciates you and we appreciate your support. Thank you, everyone.